Welcome to Industry Focus, the show that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Thursday, October 26th. It's the Energy and Industrial Show. Today we have something a little different from how we usually do things. A couple of weeks ago, we had a very interesting visitor to Full HQ, Mark Mills, who is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Mark kindly took time out of his day to talk to us about all kinds of things, policymaking, how technology will unlock efficiency in the oil and gas industry, the underappreciation of the US manufacturing industry, and even touches on some tech stocks. So sorry about that, Dylan. I'm joined in the studio today by Mark Mills. Uh, He is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a faculty fellow at the McCormack School of Engineering and Applied Science at Northwestern, and a member of the advisory board at Notre Dame Riley Center for Science, Technology and Value. He is CEO of the Digital Power Group, a partner in Cottonwood Venture Partners, a venture fund focused on the digital oil field. He co-founded and acted as chief strategist for Digital Power Capital. He writes regularly for the Wall Street Journal and Forbes. He also co-authored a book, The Bottomless Well, The Toilet of Fuel, and the virtue of waste, and why we will never run out of energy. Mark has testified before Congress, served as a staff consultant to the White House under President Reagan. But Mark, you began your career as an experimental physicist, and uh, I just wondered what made you apply your skills um, to develop policy and investing in the way that you have? Well, that's a out of left field thing. I I would have to (laughs) just say it was an accident. (laughs) All the best careers seem to be. I didn't mean to do that. Uh, (laughs) Well, I, I've always been fascinated by forecasting and, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out what's going to happen in, in the future. So I, as a kid, I read a lot of science fiction. I read the whole canon of people like Heinlein and, and uh, you know Clifford Simak and Niven and many of the people that uh, wrote at the time. But I, but I, and I wanted to be uh, thinking about what could be done next in every domain. And what I learned when I began doing experimental physics and then engineering, I got hired as a semiconductor engineer, in the early days, when mm-hmm. we, you could almost see the um, transistors with your naked eye. <laughs> they were much bigger. <clears throat> I'm old, old enough to have built vacuum tube um, power supplies myself. So <laughs> it's a, my career spans all that. But I, what I learned was that the uh, policies of countries and, and, and countries and of countries, companies and states, or the policy making itself was an extremely important component of trying to guess the future right. So it wasn't just that you could ignore policymakers if you weren't engaged in the policy making itself. You could uh, uh, have, I think, un- unhappy outcomes. You can end up, re- you know, delaying a happier future for people, or accelerating a better future for people. And since technology underlies essentially all of the sort of tectonic shifts in history, I don't mean wars aren't important in that revolutions like the American Revolution didn't matter, and the Magna Carta certainly made a difference. If you sort of compared how people, and we all know this, compare how do we live today in our political system to how people lived 100 years ago or 200 years ago, in very similar political systems, the differentiator and things that make most things a lot better is technology. Yeah. So that's why, it's a long answer to it. it was So I sort of evolved into getting involved in that as well. So I, I do both now. I'm involved in uh, policy testifying before Congress episodically and writing policy papers for the mm-hmm. Manhattan Institute. And at our, our, our boutique tech venture fund, we're involved very specifically in finding those uh, innovators making software that will sort of unlock the petabytes of unused data in the oil and gas business in the industrial markets. Yeah, absolutely. I saw that you said that, um, I may make a hash of this, but I think that you were saying that 
given the amount of unused data at the minute in the especially especially around the shale industry, there's a potentially 20% efficiency improvement that could be unlocked in the next decade. Um, how close do you think we are to actually unleashing some of that? Well, the, I think the unleashing is already starting. Mm-hmm. The, the, the oil majors have been doing this for a while. What, what's interesting isn't whether Exxon or BP, you know, Chevrons of the world use data to do seismic imaging and control drilling. It's when the unrecognized hundreds of others, oil and gas drillers and thousands of other companies in that ecosystem, which constitutes the, the, the shale revolution, when they begin doing it, and they begin adding efficiencies that a few percent better each year and then 10% better and 20% better, in commodity markets, these are these are like tectonic shifts in pricing mm-hmm. and, and make the difference between not just survival, but between being you know, a little profitable and very significantly profitable. I mean, if you invest in a stock that did 20% gain a year, you'd be a pretty happy camper. Yes, absolutely. And, and if you want to drive those kind of uh, changes in an industrial market like oil and gas, and they can be done. These are not, you don't have to get 10 times better to make a lot of money. You know, 10 to 20% better a year is, is astonishing. And, and it's already beginning. We, we already see this both in the sort of the micro level at, at startup companies. Um, there's a company that I'm, personally familiar with, I'm now biased because I have a vested interest <laughs> in a fund called Novi Labs in Austin. This is an artificial intelligence-driven play, pure software play, which you would say does the obvious. It looks at how a, an operator, where they drill and why they drill these hundreds of wells. It generates thousands and thousands of uh, uh, megabytes of data. Surely you can use all that data to help the operator figure out the optimal place to drill a well. You only have to make a tiny change in optimizing to make a big change in the capital efficacy of, of drilling. And that's really where where the focus is now on, isn't it? The location of the drilling as opposed to actually some of the, we've achieved a lot of efficiency improvements uh, in the fracking process, but now is the focus much more on the location of these uh, drills? Well, um, I, would, I would say it's up until now that's been true. I think mm-hmm. we're going to see a reversal of that. We actually know where the oil and gas is now. We don't have to go finding it. Okay. There's still some finding and optimizing a part of the shale fields are are richest, are sweetest. Mm-hmm. What I think what we're on the beginning of a, of a transformation that went from optimizing where to drill, which is the last decade of this brand new revolution, to optimizing now how to drill and how to operate. And we haven't really focused as much on that, except on the mechanical side. You know, drilling longer horizontally wells, uh, adding more sand in pressure in the wells to you know, crack the shale to release oil and gas. These are mechanical changes. What we haven't done is really optimize all of the equipment, how we operate it, the kinds of things when you would look at if you're in a manufacturing plant. You'd say, well, obviously I should optimize where my trucks are, when they arrive, you know, how they operate, when I maintain them. All these things that are sort of obvious in many industries haven't been applied in the oil and gas business. When you do that, you add efficiencies, mm-hmm. and they become very significant. Yes, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but reading a lot of your uh, research and, and your commentary, uh, your feeling is very much that in the oil and gas industry, a small change because it's such a scaled industry is going to have such an outside effect, whereas a lot of the green uh, energies that are developing, smaller changes are not having as, as an outsized effect. Well, yes, I mean, that's absolutely true because, first of all, the the oil and gas business is for oil itself is the world's largest traded commodity. It's a bigger, there are more money in trade in oil than there is in all the other metals and commodities combined. So it's a big business. So very small changes have big impacts on price and big impacts on profits. And we see that. In fact, what most people don't realize is when 
when the when markets and traders guess the supply demand balance wrong by one percent, which amounts to about a million barrels per day, that's that's what causes prices to soar or collapse. Just just a one percent on the margin, uh, and getting as massive multi-trillion-dollar global industry wrong. So the inverse of that would tell you that if I can bring efficiencies of a percent, pretty impactful because we already know one percent is impactful. Yes, the last two years. <laughs> and the, the green, so-called green technologies, the interesting part about them, which is generally unknown, is that they're on a different part of the learning curve. There, there's a general belief that wind and solar are going to get as much better in the future as they did in the past, which is actually not true in the physics. There's been a phenomenal decrease in the cost to produce a solar kilowatt hour or a wind kilowatt hour in the last 15 to 20 years. But what we've done is we've pushed those technologies close to the physics limits. So now they can get better, but they get better incrementally. We actually know this for a fact because the, the kinds of things that dictate how much energy you can take out of the wind are well known. The blade can't take out more energy from the wind than is in the wind. We're now near the physics limits of how much energy you can take out of the wind. Not at them, we're near them. That wasn't true 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. With shale, it's actually the inverse. We know for a fact that we're only extracting uh, single-digit percentages, at best say 10%, of the amount of oil and gas that's in the rock that we're trying to get oil and gas out of. So we, we have sort of visibility to 10% gains in solar and wind, which is not nothing. And we sort of visibility to tenfold gains in oil and gas eventually on that side of the equation. And that's just the extraction. And then there's also the use of it, too. Um, you know, we could get a, a ton more efficient in how we're actually using Absolutely. these Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I have uh, another question for you that's kind of a little bit of a curveball, but it's something that's close to my heart. Uh, In a Wall Street Journal article um, that you wrote recently, the cyber age has hardly begun. Um, You talk about investment dollars in tech versus traditional industry. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think this is a wonderful quote, and I'm sure you get bored with people quoting (laughs) you back to you. No, I love it. That's great. (laughs) It means Uh, people are actually reading what I'm writing, which is very comforting. It says, uh, apparently American companies can be organized now into two camps, smoking hot tech firms and old economy roadkill. I love that. And you discuss how Amazon's market value is twice that of Walmart's. Uh, Apple's valuation is twice that of Exxon's. So would you say then, um, and I probably know the answer to this, that there is a systematic uh, undervaluation of um, some of the more traditional manufacturing producing companies that we have in, uh, in the U.S.? Uh, I think there's no question. There's a, there's Both are happening. This is the nature of and I'm, t- I'm preaching the choir here at The Motley Fool, there's, there's always the case of uh, markets get uh, into story mode and they overvalue certain sectors and undervalue others. And the trick is to figure out you know, when, when it's going to turn mm-hmm. um, and, and the inverse happens. <clears throat> so we, have, we, we unequivocally are very enthusiastic about tech companies for good reason. I mean, the information revolution has not stopped. I've written about this many times. I think we're in very early days of the information revolution. I don't think we're at the end of the... Of, of, of the sort of people think we're at the beginning of the end, what more can happen in computers? No, we're really, I think, at the end of the beginning of the next computing age because computing by and large is, I think, is, is pretty lousy still. Computing is useful when you don't have to figure out how to use it. There's yes, yeah. still too much figuring out how to use the damn things. Yep. Everybody complains, which means that the engineers have done a lousy job so far. They'll do better, and once computing becomes as easy to drive a car, anybody can drive a car. A lot of people shouldn't be driving cars, driving cars. <laughs> anybody can drive a car. Kids can drive cars. 
we've made them very easy to drive. Computers are not easy to drive yet. They will get easy. And when they become easy and ubiquitous, we'll then have achieved a revolution. That's coming. That's hard. Um, so I'm very bullish on, on Apple and Amazon still. That said, uh, you know, individual companies can get overvalued. So you can get too far out of your skis. The, the growth rates now are maybe hard to sustain. On the traditional industrial side, so the, the economy is 90 plus percent in non-IT stuff. Mm-hmm. That's what the GDP is. The press wouldn't let us believe that. <laughs> well, because you, you have all, we have our attention focused on the new stuff, which is normal. Yep. And that old stuff is old stuff. But we're not going to stop needing cars or houses and food and you know materials and all the things, uh, tables and chairs. And all the stuff of the world is all stuff. It's all physical. It all has to be, things have to be dug up and moved and formed and shaped and made into things. So the industries that are good at that do well. The industries that are undervalued are those that are going to figure out how to do that phenomenally better with new information tools, sets that they become the differentiator in that 90% of the economy. So maybe put it another way, uh, we saw Amazon buy Whole Foods. Grocery is a commodity business. Mackey differentiated himself by appealing to quality. His supply chain wasn't any different than anybody else's. It's still food. Uh, now comes somebody with a different supply chain, information-centric. Very smart of Amazon to buy Whole Foods because doing what Whole Foods did is hard. It's in the physical world. What would, what would I, if I were going to predict equivalent in the physical world, uh, and it's, it was more likely that, that Amazon buy Whole Foods in the inverse because of the nature of how the market's bet on, on Amazon. How would you expect, uh, what, what, Apple should buy Ford. Ford's a fabulously efficient, extremely talented company you know how to make safe cars. It's hard to make a safe car at high reliability. Most tech guys couldn't make a safe car after life depended on it. And it's, I include Tesla because he's not making cars at the volume that Ford does yeah, at the level of safety and reliability. He could get there, but he's not there now. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to leapfrog Tesla, never mind what, how you propel the car. You want to be in the car business. If you want to be in the grocery business like Amazon did, you buy a Whole Foods. If you're a tech company, you want to be in the car business, you buy, you buy yourself BMW. And most of them could buy it for cash because of the market disparities. So that would make, you know, Ford, I mean, that Ford stock would trade up. So I'd be bullish on Ford because Ford's a great company. It doesn't matter whether Ford buys Apple or vice versa. It's, it's a bullish bet on Ford. Obviously, the, cap, the capital sits on the, on the Apple side of the equation. I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the next five years. And then you'll see a few of the old school industrial guys gobble up some software ones. I mean, you're already beginning to see it. GM bought an artificial intelligence company. Paid up pretty big, yeah. but not crazy. Because if you want to put artificial intelligence in a car, the hard part is also the car. And the AI guys that they bought, I'm not even sure most of them know how to drive a car, much less build one. <laughs> well, we're seeing that with uh, in industry too, G buying Baker Hughes. Yeah. Um, I think that's really you know the bet on the utilizing this industrial internet Absolutely. Um, to, to make Baker Hughes much more efficient. Um, well, I know you have limited time, and you're a very busy man, so thank you very, very much for talking to us today. A delight to be here. Thank, thanks for having me. Yeah, we'd love to have you back. Thank you very I'm, much. I'd love to come back if you let me have, <laughs> let, me, let me come back. Of course. Thank you.
Hopefully we'll be taking Mark up on his offer to come back and maybe talk to us a little more on the future of US manufacturing. Until then, if you would like to explore any of Mark's ideas in more detail, his recent article for Forbes titled The Future for Oil Supply and Prices After the Amazon Effect Stimulates Shale 2.0 is a great read. Next week, we're hopefully doing a rundown of GE ahead of its much-anticipated November 13th meeting, so hopefully you'll join us for that. But that's it from us today. If you would like to get in touch, please feel free to email us at industryfocus at fall.com or tweet us on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Sarah Priestley. Thanks for listening and fall on. Fall on.